0: Children, if you are in preschool and below, you may leave now to go to kids' worship. Open your Bibles to Luke 20. I, I've got to find it here. I do not know where that program went. Um, this is just really strange. Yeah, give me a paper copy. Maybe we should pray again. Uh, thank you. I really do want to find it because it's a lot easier than flipping pages. Um, Bear with me here just for one minute. I just hope that that program didn't get deleted off my lap. (coughs) Well, this will be fun. I'm not going to throw it away, I'm just going to put it down here. I feel like throwing it away. Now I'm really going to need these. I don't know, guys. Let's pray again because I can't see this without wearing my glasses the whole time. And so, actually, let's go into a time of silent prayer while I try to find this again, okay? <laughs> Seriously, would you just bow your heads and let's just pray that I can find this this morning? we can. So, yeah, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20, and I'll do the best I can here. (laughs) So, Bonnie Parker was a woman who died of cancer in 2004, and here's the sad reality about her, is that she was an avid follower of the televangelist Kenneth Copeland, and basically, Kenneth Copeland is a false teacher that basically teaches that it's a sin to get sick. And so she would follow his ministry and she would sow seeds into his ministry. And so instead of going to get cancer treatment, instead of going to get chemotherapy, she spent all of her life savings sowing into Kenneth Copeland's ministry. And then after she died of cancer, her daughter Bonnie, um, Bonnie's daughter, Christy, found one of her mother's diaries. And it detailed some notes that she had about Following Kenneth Copeland's teachings. And she found phrases in her diary that went like this If I go to a doctor, I'm sinning. If I don't believe in God, then my cancer won't go away. I need to believe more. And so she died having believed in false teaching and never went to the doctor to get help for her cancer. And Kenneth Copeland is basically, I went back and checked this week, he is the most lucrative, the the wealthiest of all of the televangelists in America. Uh, He has a net worth of $750 million. He owns a $17.5 million jet, and he has a $6 million lakefront mansion. And over the past few decades, we can count numerous scandals where televangelists have taken advantage of people, especially the vulnerable Widows giving away their life savings to sow a seed into a televangelist's ministry. There was one televangelist that said that he received all these prayer requests, and then when he got those, it was noted that he just threw them in the trash and never prayed for those people ever again. And this is sickening behavior to me for a supposed Christian leader, especially when these televangelists prey on the most vulnerable, the poverty-stricken the widows, the desperate. And I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong with a, a pastor being rich. I don't know from personal experience. Um, as you, if you notice, I've never pulled my, my private jet into our parking lot out here, so uh, I don't know that. But I really don't like the fact that some televangelists and pastors prey upon the vulnerable. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sin, and led astray by various passions. They creep into households to capture weak women. They creep into YouTube clips and podcasts and satellite feeds to capture weak women, especially widows and the vulnerable and the poor, burdened with sowing a seed. And then when your financial breakthrough doesn't come through, you're crushed with despair, you're crushed with hopelessness, and then you've given away all your money, and so that poverty cycle just keeps on continuing to go. And so I wonder, does Jesus have anything to say about this type of behavior? Remember from last week, Jesus got the last word in. He asked the ultimate question. And we found out from last week that Jesus is fully man, he's fully God, and he's fully and absolutely Lord over all. And so Jesus is still in the temple. And remember, he's in the temple teaching. This is just a few more days before Friday when he's going to be handed over to be crucified. So he's teaching publicly. He's teaching his disciples, but the Pharisees and the religious leaders are within earshot. Excuse me, earshot. And so in our passage today, Luke sets forth for us a contrast between two types of people. The sinful scribes, and a helpless widow. So let's read together. It's a fairly short passage of Scripture, but I love the way that Luke puts together his material because he's got a stark contrast. And this is the way he arranges this narrative. So let's go to the very end of chapter 20, starting in verse 45, and then we'll go into chapter 21 through verse 4. And in the hearing of all the people... He said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So let's explore these two polar opposites, these two extremes, if you will, between the religious leaders and this widow. So let's explore the first, the first passage here. It's at the end of verse 20. Jesus condemns sinful hypocrisy. Jesus condemns sinful hypocrisy. Now Jesus is addressing his disciples as you see there, but he, the, the, the religious leaders are within earshot. He's, he's talking to his disciples, but everybody's gathering around. And he says, beware. Beware of the scribes. Look out for these religious leaders. And then Jesus kind of begins to describe what they're doing, and and I've narrowed this down into four particular sins, four specific sins that these religious leaders are committing. And so here's the first sin that Jesus condemns. Jesus condemns their materialistic lifestyle. Notice that Jesus says they walk around in long robes. These long robes were a sign of wealth. They had these fringes on these robes. They had these ornate decorations. The the long flowing robe was a symbol of opulence and materialism. And they loved to walk around with these flowing robes. Luke 16, 14 says the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. They were lovers of money. Materialistic. Materialistic. I wonder if you find your identity in the things that you wear, in the things that you buy. If you find your identity in materialism, that you're wanting to accumulate all of these things. We read this earlier during our time of confession, but let me just read it again. In 1 John 2, 15-17, Do not love the world. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. They were driven by this desire to have things, to, to, to be opulent, to be materialistic to walk around in flowing robes. So that's the first thing Jesus condemns. Second, Jesus condemns their ambition for social status. Now notice what they want to do. They want to be greeted in the marketplace. You may not know this, but if a Pharisee or a scribe walked through the marketplace, you had to bow down in honor of them. They loved that. Who wouldn't love to be people bowing down to them as they're walking around? They wanted to have the greatest seats in the the synagogue, There were these benches at the front of the synagogue, right kind of behind the pulpit, where they would stand in front of everybody so they could be seen. And then what does Jesus say also there? Not only do they want to be greeted in the marketplace, they love the best seats in the synagogues, and they wanted places of honor at the feasts. Now, Jesus has already addressed this. Remember, he told that parable about people that wanted places of honor. Back earlier in Luke chapter 14, 7 through 8, Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. So these men are flaunting their wealth, walking around in flowing robes, but they crave attention. They want to have the best places. They want to have all eyes on them. They want to be greeted. They want to be loved. They want popularity. They want social status. They are driven by this ambition. And I wonder, are you driven by this ambition? Do you crave attention? Do you want to be noticed? Do you want to be on the top of the social stratus? Do you want to be craving all of the attention coming toward you? you are you driven by ambition to be better than everybody else to look greater to have this elevated position so not only were they flaunting their wealth not only were they wanting this social status but third Jesus condemns their mistreatment of the vulnerable notice what verse 47 says they devour widows houses Widows were the most vulnerable people in that ancient culture of Israel. Didn't have a lot of rights legally. And these spiritual leaders were not defending the widows, they were devouring them. And that word devouring, you go back and you look at the original language, it means to defraud, or to rob, or to manipulate, or to take advantage of financially. Now, Jesus doesn't say how they're doing this, so we kind of have to guess. We don't know how they were taking advantage of these widows, but perhaps they came to these widows and said, hey, listen, I'll give you some advice financially, and I'll, I'll help you with your finances, and maybe they were keeping back a portion for themselves. Or maybe they were promising these ladies some religious favors if they gave money directly to them. We really don't know, but they were devouring. They were defrauding. They were taking advantage of these widows, and Isaiah 1.17 says, Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. They were not pleading the widow's case. They were devouring the widow. James 1.27 says this, Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction." and to keep one's un- self unstained from the world. So they were not taking care of widows. As a matter of fact, they were devouring them. They were defrauding them. They were manipulating them. They were, they were taking advantage of the most vulnerable in that culture. These were the religious leaders. These were the guys that were supposed to be the most godly, but they were wrapped up in materialism. They were wrapped up in, in this social status. They were wrapped up in ambition. They were wrapped up in, in defrauding and, 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 and just... Devouring these widows. But then look at the last thing Jesus says. Fourth, Jesus condemns their religious hypocrisy. Notice what they do there at the end of verse 47. And for a pretense, they make long prayers. They're pretenders. That word pretense means they were pretending. They're making these long prayers. They they would stand and give these long, drawn-out prayers so everybody, everybody would see how religious they were, maybe using flowery words long, drawn-out prayers. doesn't matter if their hearts were in the wrong place. It was all for show. And I wonder if you try to impress others with your religiosity. You put on a religious show to make yourself look better than others. Make yourself look more spiritual. Make yourself look like you're all that in front of God and others. You put on a show. One thing we need to remember... Is how God views us. When Samuel the prophet was sent to pick the king of Israel, and all the brothers came in, and David, the youngest, listened to what God said to Samuel in 1 Samuel sixteen seven. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. These men were all about outward appearance. How they looked, how they were greeted, where they sat. And Jesus says, beware. Beware of these men. Beware of their sinful hypocrisy. Now, what's the result? This gets a little scary. What does Jesus say is the result of their hypocrisy? Notice what he says there at the very end of verse 47. They will receive the greater Condemnation. The greater. Don't don't just jump over that word greater. The greater condemnation. Now, all unbelievers who do not trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they will face condemnation in hell. But Jesus says for those who take advantage of others and positions of religious leadership, those that are spiritual leaders, there's a greater condemnation for those people. Those that teach false doctrine those that lead people astray. That's why James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There's a greater judgment on false teachers, on religious leaders that lead people astray. Romans 2.5 says, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That condemnation is the day of wrath. 1 Timothy 6, 3-5, through five, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings that accord with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit. Sounds like these men. Understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among God's people, or among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Describes these men here. Titus 3, 10-11, As for a person who stirs up division... After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. Second Peter 2, 1-3. False prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift-jot destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And then later on in that passage, Peter says this in 2 Peter 2.17, They are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm, for for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved greater condemnation for these types of leaders i don't know if there's a hotter place in hell for them i don't know jesus just says there's greater condemnation there's greater judgment now what's the only way anybody can escape condemnation whether you're a false teacher or a scribe or whether you're just a a normal person on the street that has no spiritual leadership position how do any of us escape condemnation well, the only answer is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. John three eighteen says, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Him is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If you don't believe in Jesus, you're already condemned. How do you, how do you get out of condemnation? You believe in Jesus. Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus this is the greatest news that you and I could ever hear. We are sinners who deserve God's justice. We deserve condemnation. We deserve hell. We deserve to be separated from a holy God. But through Jesus Christ, we can have freedom. We can have forgiveness. We can have eternal life. We can have peace with God. We're sinners Just like these religious hypocrites. Before we point our fingers at these scribes and Pharisees, let's look at ourselves. We're just as materialistic as they are. We're just as prideful as they are. We're just as selfish as they are. We're just as wrapped up in ourselves as they are. We're just as religious and and superficial as they are. And we need forgiveness too, we need cleansing. And so think about this. Jesus died on the cross for your hypocrisy. He died on the cross for your pride. He died on the cross for your selfishness and your materialism. And when we trust in Jesus alone, we are no longer under that condemnation. We have peace with God. We are forgiven. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we need forgiveness just as much as those scribes did. We're no better than them. If we're honest with ourselves, we're just as hypocritical, we're just as materialistic, we're just as prideful, we we don't care about the vulnerable, we are religious pretenders, all of us. And our greatest need is for Jesus to cleanse us from our sins. And so when we place our faith in Christ, he forgives us, he cleanses us, he takes the guilt away. We're no longer condemned for those sins. He gives us grace. So this is the first of the two opposites. Beware of these scribes. Jesus condemned sinful hypocrisy. He condemned it. There's a greater condemnation for these guys. Now let's look at the polar opposite this helpless widow. The second thing we see is Jesus commends, commends, not condemns, but commends sacrificial generosity. Not sinful hypocrisy, but sacrificial generosity. Now, Jesus looks at all these people. This is still going on. And all the wealthy people are putting their gifts in the offering box, the temple treasury. Now, the temple treasury is very interesting. It's in the court of women. It was the only place where Gentiles and women and children could come and worship. And, and so these, these temple treasuries, you guys know what a shofar is? A shofar is like a ram's horn. Okay. There were 13 shofars that were lined up, and it had the tapered end on the top so you couldn't steal stuff, and they would come and they would drop their coins in the shofars, these 13 shofars in the court of women. And we find out that this woman, how Luke describes her, notice what it says there. Verse 1, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, into these shofars, these, these horns. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. A poor widow. It's the only time this word poor is used in the Bible. It means poverty stricken to the extreme, wretched, ultimately poor the poorest of poor and she gave two small copper coins those were the smallest coins in circulation in ancient Israel kind of like our penny today what's the smallest coin we have a penny now it was illegal to give less than two copper coins If you take the equivalent today, if you look in some commentaries, basically if you were to take the equivalent today, it's basically what she gave with the two coins is 25% of a penny. So if you cut a penny in fourths, (laughs) it's like one-fourth of a penny is what she gave. That's a lot of money, right? When you were a kid and you got like, when you got money from your grandma, maybe this is like dating me, you were really happy when you got like a $5 bill. Some of you kids like, $5 bill? I get a $100 bill from my grandma. But when you got like coins or whatever, you're like, oh man, I got like a quarter. She had a fourth of a penny. And notice what Jesus does in verse 3. He commends her. He draws attention to her. He, bla- he praises her. He says in verse 3, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. Who's the more? Who's them? These rich people. And if you look at the original language, I tell you this poor widow has put in more than all of them combined is the way it looks, is the way Jesus says it. She's put in more than all of these rich people combined. A fourth of a penny. Jesus says she put in more combined than all these rich people that are putting their money into these offering boxes. They gave out of their abundance. She gave out of her poverty. She gave all she had to live on. What does Jesus say there? Verse 4 they all contributed out of their abundance. They, 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 they didn't, it wasn't a problem for them to give. They were rich, they had abundance, it was no big deal. They gave whatever they, you know, they gave a pittance. She, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, think about that. All she had to live on. How's she gonna buy groceries? How's she gonna fill up her gas tank or her ox cart? How is she going to pay that behind bill that she's on? She gave out of her poverty. She may have been tempted to think, you know what? I'm only going to give half. I'll only give one penny. But do you realize if she gave one penny, she still gave 50%? It wasn't 10%, it was 50%. She gave everything she had to live on. She had no one to take care of her as a widow. And so here's the main teaching that Jesus is giving us here. It's not the amount of money you give, but the heart of sacrificial generosity. It's the heart that matters. Matthew 6.21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's where your heart is. In Luke 12, Jesus tells a parable about the rich fool. And at the end of that, in Luke 12, 21, he says, So is the one who lays up treasures for himself, and is not rich toward God. So Jesus' point is not how much money you put in the offering plate, or how much money you give online, or how much you write the check for. The issue is not comparing yourself to others, saying, well, other people give more, other people give less. That's not what it's all about. And you should never think that the amount of your offering doesn't make a difference. Well, I was only able to give X amount this month, and that's not very much. Well, the Bible teaches proportional giving. There are some of you in this room that God has blessed financially can give more out of your abundance. And there are some of you in this room that may not have been blessed, and you give what you can give. But the whole issue is, are you giving out of a generous heart? But to not give anything shows a heart of selfishness. You know, I was thinking this past week about how much wealth we as Americans have compared to the rest of the country. I think about friends that we have around the world that live in poverty and how much we Americans just waste in our abundance. And frankly, it should embarrass us at times how much we have. And how much we, it's, just, it's easy just to kind of throw it away. The Bible has something to say about those whom God has blessed with riches. And, I, and I'm talking to all of us here. Compared to the rest of the world, all of us in this room are wealthy. Compared to the rest of the world. 1 Timothy six seventeen through 19 As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. But on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You see, here's the real issue for her. What's left over after you give? What does it cost you personally to give? How much do you keep back for yourself and how much are you being generous toward God? Proverbs 11, 24 says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. I can tell you from personal testimony that that verse is true. Earlier in our marriage, when Don and I were first married, we didn't practice tithing. We didn't practice giving. We gave intermittently. A couple of, you know, maybe... Four or five times a year, maybe, we would give. And so we withheld our tithe for a long time. It wasn't until we started systematically giving of our tithes and offerings that God began to bless us in ways that we didn't quite understand it. Because we had three incomes and we're in major debt, and we weren't giving to the Lord, and we went down to one income, and we were getting out of debt, and the Lord was blessing us. And so in mathematics, you look at that three incomes versus one income. How do you make it work? Only God blesses you when you obey. When you withhold, you suffer want. Second Corinthians 9, 6. Through 8. The point is this: whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, having all sufficiency in all things at all times. You may abound in every good work. You know, one of the things that this widow illustrates for us is she was giving to the temple ministry. She was giving to the work of the the church, if you will. And so we need to see that when we give of our tithes and offerings, we're not just giving to like a building fund or giving to a church budget. Yes, practically speaking, but ultimately when you give of your tithes and offerings, you're giving to the work of the Lord. You're giving to evangelism. You're giving to missions. You're giving to benevolence. You're giving to kingdom work so that God's gospel can go forth through his church. A generous Jesus ought to have generous followers. Let me ask you a question. Was Jesus generous? How much did Jesus tithe of his blood on the cross? Did he only give 10%? No, he gave it all. A generous Jesus ought to have generous followers. 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. You see, it's very difficult to stand up here and talk about giving and not talk about grace. I could just tell you, you need to start giving. Buck up, little camper, and start giving. And that would be ministering guilt. Here's what needs to happen. If you are, if you are to become a sacrificial, generous person, the only way that happens is when your heart begins to become melted by what Christ has done for you. When you begin to look at the cross and you look at the sacrifice of Jesus and you look at what Christ has done, and then you see, look at what my Savior has done for me, then He begins to change your heart to where you want to give because your heart's been changed. Your heart's been changed by the cross. You can't muster up the desire to give in your own strength. It doesn't come from your flesh. The desire, the ability to give freely has to come from a heart change. And the only way that heart change comes is when you look at what Jesus has done for you in his generosity on the cross. Acts 20, 35 says this, remember the words of our Lord Jesus. How He himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive would you ask the Lord to give you a generous heart a sacrificial heart a heart that truly understands that it is more blessed to give than to receive this past week I came across a story uh, Phil Riken was the former pastor of 10th Avenue Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia and Westminster Seminary is in Philadelphia, and he was a student there. And he tells the story about how when you walk into the main hall, there is a plaque. There's like a, a framed plaque on the wall. And this is what the framed plaque on the wall says this frame notice. It reads this at the seminary Fanny Mulder was called to glory on October 20th, 1987. In a letter from her attorney, we learned that she had only the following personal property on her possession when she died, having been on Medicaid assistance for the last few years. And then they, the notice listed the things that they found in her apartment when she died. So here's what she had left. Six robes, two sweaters, 19 hospital gowns, one pair of slippers, and five pair of socks. She had a purse, a mirror, a toothbrush, a comb, and a pair of reading glasses. And she had a broken radio... And she had some money. Do you know how much money they found in her apartment? Twelve cents. A dime and two pennies. The notice also said that she had drawn up a will and she wanted her money to go to kingdom work, to go to the gospel. So, guess who got the twelve cents? After the will went through probate, Westminster Seminary was a beneficiary of 12 cents. And in honor of her giving all she had, 12 cents, they framed that and put it in the entrance of the seminary to show it doesn't matter the amount. It's the heart. Now, it wasn't two pennies, but it was 12 cents. What an amazing story that a lady gave 12 cents left of her will And that 12 cents went to the seminary. And she left a legacy. She gave everything she had to Jesus. And it was only 12 cents. I wonder what kind of legacy you're leaving for the kingdom of God. Are you marked by sinful hypocrisy? Beware the scribes. Or are you marked by sacrificial generosity like this poor widow? I pray all of us have the heart of this widow. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. If there's any pride in our hearts, if there's any hypocrisy in our hearts, if there's any gross materialism in our hearts, if there's any ambition for social status in our hearts, if there's any religious pretending in our hearts, I'm asking that you would just root it out, take it out, free us from that, Lord Jesus. Help us to own up to it, help us to confess. We don't want to be like these scribes. Lord, we know that this woman, this poor widow, gave two pennies, two copper pennies, all she had. Lord, would you use this to convict us of our stinginess at times? Lord, would you help us to give generously and sacrificially? And Lord, help us to realize it's not the amount. It's not comparing ourselves to others. It's the heart. So Lord, maybe you need to work in our hearts this week to birth generosity, to cultivate (laughs) sacrificial giving. Whatever needs to happen, Lord, we ask you to do it. So, Lord, we want to leave this place changed. We, we don't want to leave this place hypocrites. We want to leave this place as generous people, and that can only come through your grace, Lord. It can only come through your power, only come through your working in us. And so, Lord, we, we need your grace. We do desperately need it. We can't, we can't do this in our own power, Lord. So we turn to you, we trust in you. Lord, help us to see how sacrificially generous you were to us on the cross. And let us be sacrificially generous back to you. Not because we need to earn your love, but because you've already loved us. And it's our way of saying thank you for being so generous to us. So Lord, we need your power, we need your grace this week. Help us to walk in that. Help us to keep our eyes fixed upon you. May we as individuals, as families, as in a church be marked by sacrificial generosity this week. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.